All right, so Daniel chapter 6. Um, so Carrie and I went to Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago. Anybody been to D.C.? Okay. So it's the first time we'd ever kind of really been there. Um, I've been there on a layover for like a couple of hours once, but that's it. So we spent a week in D.C. Um, with pastor and a lot of others from the church kind of serving for the National Day of Prayer, gatherings that took place all week long. Um, and it was an eye-opening experience. Like if you've been, you kind of understand um, just the scope of business, the buildings, is all the influence and power that's represented there, all the history. Um, we got to take a tour of the Capitol building one evening and, uh, and just sort of see all the stuff, statues everywhere and all this kind of stuff. And um, it, it's, it sort of takes your breath away a little bit, just the scope of everything. When you think about the history, like this is where George Washington laid in state. Um, so this just all kinds of really cool stuff if you're into history. Um, but if you're into politics, it's kind of the same thing. I'm, I'm not really into politics that much, but it was kind of cool just to get to see where all of this power and all this influence kind of um, is, is central in our country, right? Um, and so while being there, it was an eye-opening experience in that it got me thinking about influence and cultural engagement. Like a lot of people have very different opinions on politics, on should, should we be engaged in politics, should we not be engaged at all. And if you just if you back that up from just politics, you can think about culture at large. What role does a Christian play in, in cultural engagement? Whether that's on a large scale in terms of government or our particular state and local areas or the culture of your office place or the culture of your neighborhood. Like wh what is it or how is it that we can contribute into all of these different environments of influence or opportunity? And typically Christians will um, kind of view their opportunities of influence in, in maybe three different broad categories. Number one, we, uh, we, we isolate ourselves from it. So we, pre we don't pay attention so much and we don't participate. We, we just sort of say that's them and, and this is us, right? That's, that's, that is uh, sort of not engaging, disengaging, isolating ourselves. And, and sort of a, a, a maybe a second or middle category here would be, and I don't know that we, we, we think about this consciously, but we do this subconsciously. And number, category number two is assimilation, where we so fit into the culture that we don't actually distinguish ourselves in any way, shape, or form at all. We, we look like everybody else in our behaviors, our pursuits, our goals, our, our personal mission and vision, and things we're after and what we're doing. We assimilate in culture so much that we don't even stand out anymore and we sort of don't have an influence. And, and, and the third category over here is kind of where I want us to aim at and look at today. And that is how do we engage every kind of culture that we're involved in, whether it's politics on a national level, local politics, workplace influence and environments that you're contributing to, neighborhoods, homes, families, all of these different areas. How do we engage them, not isolate ourselves from them, not assimilate totally into them, but how do we invest in, engage in, and contribute to them with gospel influence, okay? So that's, that's kind of the big idea that I want you to look at today. Daniel 6, just a little bit of a background. The book of Daniel is established here historically when um, Nebuchadnezzar basically lays Jerusalem waste because the Lord had given Jerusalem over to the Babylonians as judgment against Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 1 says that the Lord gave Babylon, or I'm sorry, gave Jerusalem to Babylon and it was as a judgment against them. 
And so you have a large group of people have been, have been taken captive from Jerusalem and transferred to Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 1 and 2, you, you learn about all this. So they're incorporated into culture. So they're living as exiles in another culture. Now the thing about Babylon that you need to kind of understand is it was an evil, godless empire. In fact, if you trace the word Babylon all through the Bible, it's used as the, I believe, one of the single most identifiers of evil. Right? In Revelation, they talk about how this is Babylon, not speaking specifically to the nation of Babylon, but evil at large. So this is a wicked and evil empire. And so these guys aren't on vacation in another land. They are enslaved and captured and forced into Babylonian culture. But what we see in Daniel 6 is how Daniel and others go about not isolating themselves from culture, not assimilating into it so much that they disappear, but that they maintain their faith while engaging all of these different areas, politics specifically here. All right, Daniel chapter 6, we're going to read 1 through 10, and then we're going to jump in this morning. So let's look at this together. Darius, which at this particular time is the leader of the Persian sort of empire here, the Medes. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm. And over them, three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps, now this is a fancy word here. Basically what it means is administrative districts. So the, the king is sort of dividing up his kingdom into these manageable pieces or zones. And then he's putting men and, and leaders over these zones. And above these zones or these districts are three leaders to which all the others are accountable to. And one of those three is David or Daniel. Sorry, look at two. It says these satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. So here I hear, basically what happens is Darius is saying, listen, no more $10,000 toilet seats in my kingdom, right? No more right? defrauding, like no more wasting money, no more stealing. Like that government fraud existed way back then as it does now. And so he's trying to put an end to that. Look at verse 3. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and other satraps. So he's distinguished himself from all these different people. He says because, look at this, because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. Verse 4, the administrators and satraps therefore kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they could find no charge or corruption. For he was, listen, trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. And then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel, unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. And so the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the, the, uh, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors, and the governors, we've, we've all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days... Anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. Look at verse 10. And when Daniel 
learned that the document had been signed. He went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Now, I'm not going to read through the whole passage here. We're, we're, you're probably familiar with the idea here. Daniel goes on to be thrown into the lion's den, and the, the king goes the next day. We'll get to it here in a few minutes, and he, is, he comes out unharmed. But what I want to do, like I've said already, I want to walk through this passage, and I want us to answer the question, really, as Christ followers... How do we, what do we see from Daniel's life that will inform how you and I are to engage the culture that we are in and whatever influence we have, whether that's on a large scale nationally or locally or your business place at, at, come Monday, or if you're a stay-at-home mom, like how you're investing in and serving your family in the home. So that's kind of what we're looking at. I want to give you three keys like I typically do. I'm going to give, you, give them one at a time this morning. And here's the first one. The first thing that we see Daniel demonstrate for us is this. Number one, work diligently. Work diligently. You notice in verse 4 of Daniel chapter 6, it says that he was a trustworthy person. That when his enemies tried to find something against him to bring him down, they were not able to do it because he was a trustworthy person. It goes on to say that he had, there was no negligence that existed in him. No corruption was to be found in Daniel's life or work. He demonstrates for us that no matter where we are as a believer in Christ, we should at least start with working diligently. If you flip back over to Daniel chapter 5, verses 11 and verse 14, we also learn a little bit more insight from Daniel about his work ethic, about his diligence. In verses 11 and 14 of chapter 5, it says this. It says that Daniel had great insight, Daniel had intelligence, and he had an extraordinary spirit or extraordinary wisdom. In Daniel chapter 1, we learn that God is the one, and we know this already perhaps, but in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel himself writing this says that this intelligence, this wisdom, this knowledge was given to me by God. But I want you to pay close attention to this. It was a God-given thing. His talent, his ability, his wisdom, his ability to progress in this um, advanced sort of internship of sorts, if you suppose, was because God had given him everything, that could, the ability to succeed in these areas. But here's the thing for you and I. You and I all have, we have God-given spiritual gifts and we have God-given talents. You have intellect, creativity, wisdom. We, you have all of that because God has given it to you, but it's upon you and me to be responsible with it. It was Daniel who received all this and gave, gave credit to the Lord for it, but Daniel faithfully executed that which he had been given. Does that make sense? So he was diligent in his work. Daniel lived what I would call the Colossians 3.17 mantra, if you're familiar with Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Colossians 3.17 says this, long before, I'm sorry, whatever you do, you're already familiar with it upon those words? Whatever, whatever you do, 
in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the mantra that Daniel lived under while in captivity, while being forced to study a culture that was godless and evil and against anything he'd ever grown up knowing and or currently believing. He had his name changed. So his identity had been taken and was being try- they were trying to rebuild it. But Daniel faithfully lived out not an isolated incident or activity or life, not an assimilated one, but in a culturally engaged one, a spiritually engaged one, because he lived the, ma- the mantra of Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Sometimes, look at me carefully, most of the time when you and I think about what it means to be a Christian in the workplace, we typically think about the more obvious spiritual side of our, I would say, a narrow-minded view of what it means to be a spiritual person in the workplace. So we, we might think about, well, should we leave tracks in the bathroom? Should we have Christian music playing on our computer so people kind of get the gist of who we are and what we believe in? You know, should we be gospel sharers over lunch? And, and none of those things are particularly bad things. But there is a whole lot more in play what it, to what it means to be a Christian in the workplace. And part of it is your work ethic. Because no matter who's looking, your God is looking. And the scripture calls us to be about doing everything in the name of Jesus, word or deed, whatever it is. And by the way, you can do that whether you work at a Christian organization like Chick-fil-A or any other organization here that's doing everything it can to be so secular that it's removed all religious practice. This isn't just that, well, well, you can work for the church so you can do this and say this. No, this is the scripture and it's for you, where you work, what you do. And it starts by working diligently. I want to show you this quote. This is one of my favorite quotes um, about Christians in the workplace. It's by Dorothy Sayers. She was a crime novelist in the late, early to mid-1900s. And, uh, and she's writing this about, actually, I got ahead of myself. This is Joel Bell. Sorry, I'm going to get you that quote in a second, so don't be disappointed. Um, so this is Dare to be Daniel. This is Joel Bell. He wrote an article in 1996 in the presidential election um, and about Christians engaging culture. He says this. He says, Daniel set the standard for Christians who would hold public office. Daniel, while he was still a young man, and, and long before he became a famous prophet, and set the, he set the standard for Christians who would hold public office. He was serious about the work of statecraft, but he was even more serious about being known as a servant of God, determined to follow God's precepts no matter the cost. Our society, he goes on to say, could use a few more political leaders like Daniel. But even prior to that, and perhaps more to the point, we could use a few leaders like that in other walks of life. See, what he's saying here is this is not just about political involvement. It's not about how you vote. It's about how you show up to work on Monday and how you're demonstrating the giftedness that God has given you and demonstrate the quality of your work because your God is watching you. And it starts here. You want to be a Christian leader. You want to work for an organization that has Christian values. Then be an employee with Christian values and see if God doesn't raise you up to lead at a higher level. But what you can't do is wait to be a Christian in the workplace when you have that kind of influence. Because when you get there, you won't know how to lead with it. Because it won't have been a part of your life prior to that. You see, what we see from Daniel is his diligence and his integrity were among the most significant parts of his life. It's mentioned here in chapter 6 and chapter 4 and in a few other places in the book. This was a big piece of who he was. And it led him, listen carefully, 
it led him, a captive in a foreign land, to have influence before three different kings. That's a big deal. But when Daniel had the opportunity, he was prepared because it was who he was every day, not something he attempted to turn on when the opportunity showed up. Look at this. He says, you don't have to turn here, but let's think about this for a second. He, he, in chapter 4, we see that Daniel is used to advise King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 5, 20 years after King Nebuchadnezzar, um, he uh, advises King Belshazzar. In chapter 6, as course is our text today, we see that he's appointed by Darius, the new leader of this kingdom, to now the high, one of the highest, three highest positions in the land, but then he's being considered to be the second to the king in terms of highest in the land. But here's what you have to understand about Daniel. And I've already kind of said it and alluded to it, but here, listen carefully. Daniel wasn't just diligent when the kings were looking. Daniel was diligent all the time because his king was looking. Do you get that? Daniel, Daniel wasn't just diligent and just executing on integrity and demonstrating character when the kings were looking. Daniel was, was demonstrating and living all that out because he believed that his king was looking. Colossians 3.17 Whatever I do in word or deed, whether I'm being recognized or not, whether I have influence in terms of the scope and what we celebrate as influence, or whether I feel like I don't have hardly any at all, people are watching. But more than that, God is watching. And we ought to honor the Lord with our work ethic by being diligent. Now, Dorothy Sayers, the quote that I tempted you with earlier, I want to share with, share with you now. Look at this. This is so good, so practical. Look what she says. Dorothy says, the, church, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours. And then they come to church on Sundays. But what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Church by all means, and yes, by, and in decent forms of amusement, yes, certainly. But look at this. But what use is all that if the very center of his life and occupation, he is insulting God with bad carpentry? Now, Daniel wasn't a carpenter. But if he was... My guess is that he would be, because he is trustworthy, intelligent, and not corrupt, that if he were a carpenter, he would have made very good tables. And not because his client was a high-paying client. Daniel would have made good tables because his craftsmanship represented his worship to his God, and he wanted to demonstrate in an honorable way that which he does, he does for the Lord. So the very first thing we see Daniel do is demonstrate diligence in the workplace. He has character and integrity. So let me ask you two, two questions before we move on to point two. What about you? What about you at work? Are you living and operating under the Colossians 3.17 mantra for yourself? 
What do people think about your work ethic when they think about you? Do you live and function and serve and work and grind day in and day out because your God is watching? Are you setting the standard for quality? Are you being an example for what is fair and what is just and what, is it, what it means to be a thoughtful contributor, a thoughtful leader in your organization, your neighborhood, your home? Would you... Amen, amen. A little feedback's always appreciated, especially with some of you guys. Here's another question. Would you hire you? Would you hire you? If you were in charge of the whole organization, would you hire you? Would you, would you multiply yourself in the organization and feel like you could go home at the end of the day and trust that it was going to be taken care of? The very first thing we do, we ought to do as Christians, is be diligent in the workplace. Here's number two. Number two. So diligent in our work because we do it for the Lord. Number two is walk with God. Right, this is the obvious one. Number two, walk with God. You know, of all the things, of all the things that we see in David, Daniel, sorry, of all the mentions of his work ethic, his intelligence, his wisdom, and him executing upon these gifts that God had given to him, for every one of those, I don't know if this ratio is exactly perfect or not, but for every one of those, you see twice as much of a reference to the presence of God being recognizable in his life. He's not an incompetent, faithful follower of Christ. He is a diligent demonstrator of the presence of God. Look at these verses, or, or listen to these. You don't have to turn here. Listen to these verses. Daniel chapter 4, verse 8 says this, observing Daniel's life. He says, a spirit of the holy gods is in him. Daniel 4, 18 says this, you have a spirit of the holy gods. Daniel 5, 11, he's a man who has a spirit of the gods in him. Daniel 5.14, I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you. And in our own text today, Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, Daniel had an extraordinary spirit. What's crazy to me about this is that the people who are saying this about Daniel do not believe in his God, but they cannot deny the presence of something in his life. Isn't that great? Like this is an evil, godless empire. Sins abound. Idolatry is everywhere. King Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue to himself, says worship it or burn. Daniel chapter 6 here, that the, there was such evil and pride in the heart of Darius that people were able to flatter him enough that he made an edict that if you didn't pray to me for 30 days, you'd be thrown into the lion's den. Look at Daniel chapter 6 verse 10. Daniel was a man marked by prayer. It says in Daniel chapter 10, chapter 6, verse 10, that after he hears this, after he observes and hears what this edict is, what does he do? He goes back to his house, as he normally does, and he prays three different times. Three times a day. Now, this, is not a, this isn't a, this is what you should do. This is a demonstration. This is a, a visual exp expression of Daniel's devotion to God. 
He was a man dedicated to prayer. He was a man dedicated to having a personal relationship with God. His faith was crucial to who he was. Remember last week, the, uh, the quote I gave you from Leonard, Leonard Ravenhill, the first line of that quote says, No man is greater than his prayer life. But right here, we're given a pretty decent insight into the faith of Daniel. Daniel was a man who diligently worked, yes, but he was even more than that. He was a man who walked with God. It's interesting to me, and I've I've already addressed this, that that his colleagues, non-Christian, the the non-Jew colleagues that are mentioned in the text, and then these other leaders and other kings recognize there's something different about Daniel. But did you know that even his biblical colleagues note that Daniel's righteousness was superior and stood out about him? In the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 14, verse 14 and verse 20, Daniel is mentioned in line with Noah and Job for their righteousness. Ezekiel, another contemporary prophet of Daniel's time, addresses the fact that Daniel, that dude, he is righteous. He is a righteous man. He's a God-fearing man. He loves Jesus. So time and time again, David's spirit stood out. He's facing execution at the hands of this insane King Nebuchadnezzar earlier in chapter 2. In verse chapter 2, I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 2, verse 14, and Daniel says this. Then Daniel responded, listen to this. This is a demonstration of what the Holy Spirit does in us when we walk with God in a crazy, ungodly um, you know, environment. Look what Daniel does. So King Nebuchadnezzar issues the edict that, oh, by the way, I'm, I can't get this dream figured out, and so I'm mad at the people who can't interpret it for me, so kill every one of the people who are supposed to be the wisdom people in Babylon. Thank you very much. And then the, the, his, his dude, his, his executor of that command or decree goes out and starts to try to, to circle them all up to do what he says. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 14. It says this, that Daniel responded to this edict And to the king's man, this is crazy. Daniel responded to this situation with tact. In the CSB it says with tact and discretion to the captain of the king's guard who was coming to execute them. But because David was such a man of faith, he had a confidence in God. And that confidence demonstrated in his life by having a spirit that was extraordinary. And in this particular season of of tension and fear and threat, he was able to speak with tact and discretion. He didn't attack. He didn't preach. He responded with tact and discretion. Let me ask you these questions about your own faith. Does Does your faith, does your faith stand out like Daniel's? Would people that you work with be surprised to discover that you were a Christian because of your known background among them? Not that we don't all speak out of turn and make mistakes from time to time, but would people generally be surprised? See, Daniel's faith was such a real part of his life that it showed up in his treatment of others. It informed the quality of his work. It guided his demeanor at work. It gave him confidence to speak the truth in love. And most of all, it showed up when he faced serious adversity. 
it showed up when he faced adversity because it was a part of who he was before the adversity ever arrived. I love what Chuck Swindoll says in his book on Daniel. says this, that Daniel's relationship with God was not crisis-oriented. Like his walk with God didn't exist just when he was in trouble. He was praying three times a day before he discovered Darius's edict. And we'll see more of that in just a moment. So number two, work diligently. Number, two, or number one, work diligently. Number two, walk with God. This is how we engage our culture. And number three, quickly, suit up. Suit up. Suit up. Now, this isn't just about dressing for success. Okay? So part of that is a, is a real thing, yes. Dress for success. But I want you to think about this. This is really, point three here, suit up is really more about being prepared for trials. Because you try to live this way, you try to serve God faithfully in your work, and you try to walk with God faithfully um, in your life day to day, you, you will face trials. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 says this, All who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. See, remember in Daniel, verses 6 through 9, what happens is Daniel's colleagues, right, they couldn't find any kind of, they're jealous because his work ethic is, becoming, is beginning to, to, to have him move up in the organization. And he's about to be, a, from being a colleague to inferior or to, to be a subordinate of that. You ever been in that situation? You ever been raised up to now you're the, you're the boss, the people that used to be BFF with and co- the people that used to hang out with and talk about the boss with? And now you are that boss, so you know what's being said about you. So here these guys are like, oh, we can't have none of this. Like when it was us and him, maybe that was a little bit okay. He was weird. He was a Christian. He was a religious person, a God man. But they can't handle this. They're jealous. And so they go to Darius. They stroke his ego. They convince him, oh, majesty, oh, king. To set this decree up so that if anyone is caught praying to anybody but you for the next 30 days, they should be thrown into the lion's den. I, I was thinking this kind of sounds like a Senate confirmation hearing. Like if you ever see a Christian that's been nominated <laughs> for something in the Senate, and it's like they try to attack you on three levels. They try to attack you ethically. They try to attack your moral background or your, and then your track record and how, who you are and what you've done and how you've served. And then even though there's no religious test for serving in the government, that's the exact third place they go to. And so for us to ever imagine, or we should never be caught by surprise that anybody and everybody, political office and in the cube at your office, will eventually, we shouldn't be surprised that we'll eventually find ourselves being persecuted for our faith. And if you're not ever finding any kind of tension around your faith, it might be because you haven't isolated yourself, but but you've assimilated yourself. And so you blend in so much, they don't even know you are different than them. Look at... Look at Daniel 6, verse 10. I want to show you something of Daniel's unwavering faith. Daniel's unwavering faith. He's being persecuted now. His faith is being forced into the conversation in as much as it's your job or your faith, Daniel. Look what he says in verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house, the windows... In his upstairs room, open towards Jerusalem, and three times a day, he got down on his knees, he prayed and gave thanks to his God. Look at the very last line. Just as he had done before 
his faith wasn't a crisis-driven faith. It existed for him before, in, and following the crisis. Here's the thing. As you read the rest of the story, we know that Daniel willingly walked into the lion's den. So he's got this notoriety and success. He's been serving in the high levels of government. He's about to be elevated to an even higher level of government. But all of a sudden, the thing that drives him, the thing that guides his life is being forced to sort of become one or the other type of a scenario here. But Daniel willingly walks into the lion's den, listen carefully, because his success never superseded his faith. His success never superseded his faith. When it came time to surrender his success for the sake of his faith, he trusted God and walked into the lion's den, just as he had been drugged into Babylon. This intersection between what he was a man built on his faith and the success he had in his career, when he comes to that intersection, he didn't sell out or compromise his faith. And let me tell you, he had some success. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, this bloodthirsty Nebuchadnezzar says to him, he promotes Daniel and gave him, the text says, generous gifts. In Daniel 5.29, Belshazzar takes Daniel and clothes him in purple and places a gold chain on him. Talking about, that's a good trophy for the employee of the quarter right there, a gold chain. But all of that success, when it came time to lay it down for his faith, he did not hesitate because his success never superseded his faith. So let me ask you a question. If it became clear to you that your faith was about to cost you your job, the job you've worked for, the job you've paid and are still paying for undergrad to have, the job that's afforded you, the the things that you enjoy, the flexibility, the margin, whatever it is that you have, the, the, the fruit of all that. If your faith was about to cost you your job, which one would you lay down? Which one would you lay down? See, Daniel demonstrates some essential things for Christ's followers. You want to engage your culture? You want to be what God's called you to be? You want to be salt and light? you got three ways to consider that. Number one, I'm going to isolate away from all this godlessness. Or number two, I'm going to either consciously or subconsciously or what have you sort of assimilate into culture to not offend anyone. And a truth that doesn't offend isn't truth, not gospel truth. Now, we need to do love and grace. Don't be a moron at work and think you're succeeding for Christ. You're not modeling the life of Jesus that way. And then the third thing is, am I going to engage culture? If you're going to engage culture the way the gospel and the way the scriptures call us to, then you've got to start by working diligently. You've got to be a man or a woman driven by faith and be committed in your walk with God. And you need the first two because the third one will happen. You will face persecution. At some point, you're going to be passed over. You're going to be mistreated. People are going to question your ethics because of your work ethic. Hopefully not. But even if they can't prove anything there, they'll go after your faith. And so we need to work diligently, walk with God, and suit up. 
That's how God can use us to be salt and light in every organization, in every sphere of influence that you find yourself in. And let me just be honest with you. You you don't know. Daniel didn't know where he would end up. Daniel had no idea that he would be a captive in a godless evil country or space or kingdom like Babylon. But he found himself there, and he didn't give up on his faith. He didn't isolate or assimilate. He engaged. And in his engagement, he found himself consulting three different kings. And subsequently, even though they were short-lived, three revivals in Babylon. I want to show you one really quick thing, and then we're going to be done. I want to show you something that seems to me strikingly familiar to you, perhaps. Look with me at Daniel chapter 6, verse 17, really quickly. Daniel 6, 17, this is kind of how the story begins to wrap up and, and then end. Daniel 6, 17 says, The stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. Does that sound familiar to you? Stone being rolled over a hole? Verse 19, look at verse 19. Daniel 6, 19 says this, At the first light of dawn, what happens? At the light of dawn, the king got up and runs to the lion's den. See, is Daniel there? Anybody? Sound familiar to you? Matthew 27, 60 says this, Joseph of Arimathea rolled a great stone against the entrance of Jesus' tomb. Sound familiar? Matthew 28, 1, after the Sabbath, at the first day of the week, at dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. This is at least two times in the scriptures where a stone is rolled over what they think is a dead man. And in one case, David or Daniel comes out unscathed. Jesus went into his tomb already dead, came out of his trial by resurrection power with the scars of his trial. Touch my hand, Thomas. Look at my side, Thomas. You see, this, I'm going to wrap up with this. This story is not, Daniel 6 is not a story about, hey, if you walk faithfully with God, you too will go through a trial, but you'll come out unscathed. Now, that's not what this, really, this story is really, that's what happened for Daniel. But that's not what this story is really about. What this story is really about is that your God will be with you in your trial. The angel shows up in the furnace like a son of man. The angel of God shows up in the den and shuts the mouth of lions. This is a story about your God being with you in your trial. In Jesus' resurrection, I'm going to close with this. Jesus' resurrection points us to a future hope. That those who put their faith in him today will experience a day when he will set all things right. Victory is coming. In the meantime, work diligently, walk with God, and be prepared for a trial. Trust him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio message from the Young Adult Gathering at Cross Church Pinnacle Hills Campus. For more information about Cross Church, please visit us online at www.crosschurch.com.